this is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, the healing brush. Chantal Gibson is not just a poet, but also a visual artist who wants to understand how technology shapes who we are. For instance, in her latest book titled Withholding, she studies the internet as a place where black pain is so often turned into memes, clickbait, products, and virtue-signaling messages. And because she's a visual artist, she plays with the way her poems look graphically. One poem, for instance, tumbles over the page with the letters squished out and piled up like rubble. Another poem is stretched out in the shape of a mask. And then there's a series of poems in the form of a web shop with an add to cart button that never lets us forget we're here to buy. But besides being a poet and a visual artist, Chantal Gibson is also a scholar. And she has this way of talking to other scholars who are long dead as if they're right beside her. For instance, there is one poem where she's in conversation with Franz Fanon. She writes, Some days I think of you, like you just pop into my head. So she tells him about all the crazy, infuriating anti-black products and news articles and logos she sees, and he already saw in his time, but that still somehow keep existing, keep multiplying. And she tells him, if you come back, you better step up your game. It's intimate, as if they're close friends. But it took her a while to feel this close to him. Because as she alludes to in one poem, she came to university and to black studies late. So I was curious what she did beforehand. Here's Chantal Gibson. I totally had a full-on life before I started university. I went to high school in a really small town in northern BC, population probably, I think at that time, maybe six or 7,000 people. Quite an isolated town, you know, pulp and paper uh, mill town. So mm-hmm. that's where I went to high school. And then I moved to Vancouver to go to college. And I went to college for about a year and a half, and my mom passed away. And so there's a gap there from about, you know, 19 and probably like 25, where I just worked. Um, I worked in a hair salon. I managed a hair salon. Um, I did acting and I worked in group homes as a residential counselor. Like I just had all of these lives. And then I just reached this point where I was like, I need to go back to school. And when I did, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to study English, but I stumbled on an art history course that completely changed me. And so from then I finished my undergrad and I went into grad school and I did English lit and art history. And it's that combination of disciplines and learning critical reading and understanding how literature works, but also understanding art and history and representation, which informs my work now. So I'm a writer and I'm a visual artist and I'm most interested in that sweet spot where the text and the image overlap, which is really what withholding is, is all about is that spot. Yeah. And when I talk about being a latecomer, you know, I have like a super colonial upbringing 
up here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see people of color in any of my primary school or any, you know, even right up until university, I wasn't really encountering blackness until, you know, I went to UBC. Mm-hmm. And that's when I met, you know, Franz Fanon. That's when I met Audre Lorde. Mm-hmm. That's when I really met Dion Brand, like all of the beautiful humans that inform me yeah. as a person, but also my practice, you know, Bell Hooks, who is so important in this book. And of course, you know, my love, James Baldwin. Um, it's funny, I'm looking across at a poster, uh-huh. which I made of the cover of The Fire Next Time, which is in my office, screaming loud in <laughs> yellow and orange in my office. So when I talk about being a latecomer, that's what I mean is that, you know, I really didn't start encountering blackness until I started learning cultural studies. And even then, I wasn't necessarily seeing, you know, blackness in the content of the curriculum in the way that we're seeing it now. So that's where that comes from. And those years, you know, that gap that you talked about between 19 and 25, where you were doing all kinds of jobs from managing a hair salon to, you know, counseling at, a, at, a, at group homes. Do you feel like when you then went back to university and you read all these scholars and poets, you learn things that you were able to apply on what you had seen in your working life in the communities where you, you know, where you worked? I I love your question, because the thing that I think about, especially when I'm talking to my students right now who think that they have to have everything figured out, you know, probably my most informative schooling, my most important, you know, kind of life altering schooling happened when I was managing a hair salon. Mm. Because it was like this really dope hair salon in the 90s in Vancouver. It still exists. It's called Suki's, but it was on the best street, Robson Street. And I was just one of those people that I kind of like, I think I've kind of grown up backwards. Like I was way more mature in my 20s than I am now. (laughs) And super organized, right? Uh-huh. I had a, you know, and I I got this job as a receptionist and then I, you know, gradually became a, a manager. But I work with this staff of like 35 people from all over the world. So this is where I actually really learned to engage with people across different cultures, across all the continents, you know, all the stuff that I understand about the LGBTQ community, around queerness, around identity. I was experiencing it there with such a diverse group of people. Like it was, it was a home for me because I didn't really think about myself as other there because everyone was different. Yeah. And part of my growing up, and I think an informative part of my, my growing up there was folks there kind of checking me on what was appropriate in terms of how we call each other, how we talk to each other, you know, that that's where I understood cultural difference. And when I started university, everybody was to read in the same way and understand in the same way. You know, it's kind of making me smile because when I think about Of course, you know, there's like a difference between academic learning and, you know, learning how to swim and breathe in that water, right? And yes. and some of us just never, we never do it. Like it's never comfortable. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I started, you know, engaging with critical material, 
I realized that there were these other ways, like, you know, Saeed, right? Like there were just these other ways of talking about people who were not white from, you know, the Western world. Um, But it was never comfortable, I guess, because I didn't swim in an academic world. Mm. It, It didn't feel as comfortable to me. Right. Theory wasn't easy for me. Reading Homie Baba wasn't easy for me. Like, <laughs> is this for was, anyone? I, really I don't know. Wonder. Right. But yeah. but I would always have so much admiration for people who, you know, just really got theory. Like my my really good friend, James, who uh, I met in third year art history course, like he was he was so amazing with theory and he'd have to coach me and help me yeah yeah and really what I needed was like I I got really good at those books like you know that would uh you know like I still have Phenom for Beginners right but I was one of those people that really needed Mm -hmm. you know secondary sources to help me understand like the pure ideas that were coming through scholarship and I mean and I guess that's the thing is is that in the time you know when I read Black Skin and White Masks there were some parts that I felt like, oh, I I think I get this. I understood that moment of being called out. I understood that moment of being othered. But also the things that I was thinking about or not thinking about at that time was like the world that Fanon was was working in as a psychologist, as a doctor, like in this kind of white Western tradition, all of these references to... Freudian psychology, like, I I just didn't know about that stuff, right? Yeah. And since I have become a teacher, and I've been teaching for over over 20 years, it's just like, your education doesn't end when you get the degree, it actually just kind of starts, right? And so I have, like, I've gone back, especially with my writing and thought about, you know, whose voice did I first meet in university? And who still matters to me? And for this book, it really was Fanon, but what I did was I end up really thinking and learning about him as a doctor, you know, his practice as a psychoanalyst and and him working with patients and encouraging them to use culture as a way of working through their issues. So like he would have them create newsletters and engage with film and engage with literature, you know, and this idea of creativity being a really important part of working through trauma. And that was something that I, you know, I didn't get 20 some odd years ago when I was in school. So I saw this person in a completely different way. So yeah, so I just don't think if you're a lifelong learner, I just don't think it goes away. And there's some people you keep circling back to. There's those people that become your favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's for me why I could, sit in this book in a very long poem called Fanon's Couch. Much of this book was, you know, came out of 2020. Mm. And it's just like, how how do I imagine myself coming back to this person that I met in grad school and imagine myself talking to him about what's happening right now, right? What's happening with the representation of Black people in this time, in 2020, you know, in terms of capitalism and technology and the very ideas that he was talking about when he was writing, you know, in the 50s, we are still engaging those ideas, right? And, and you know, the masks just took on a whole other meaning because COVID was happening. Hmm. But there was just something about the, the 
positioning of the book that this was the person that I needed to sit with. Yeah. I love the epigraph that you use from Franz Fanon, who writes that in order to understand what colonization does to the self, quote, we need only to study and appreciate the scope and depth of the wounds inflicted on the colonized during a single day under mm -hmm. a colonial regime. And I love that so much. I love that, you know, all that he prescribes is looking closely at a single day. So so tell me, how, how did this quote guide you through the writing of this book? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, there's something about the single day. So in withholding, there's lots of encounters with single days. So, for example, there's... Uh, a poem called Add to Cart. And, you know, uh, I teach in a school, art, design, and technology. We talk about the impact of technology on humans, human-centered design. And so the poem Add to Cart really came from me spending, you know, days and days and days of moving through these, you know, DIY design sites mm -hmm. because I was interested in, I have been interested in for a very long time and, you know, how we can make our own stuff and whose images do we take and what is the ethics of, you know, taking somebody else's image and putting it on a t-shirt or a hat or a coffee cup. But I just started looking at like iconic images around blackness. Mm -hmm. And I started to, you know, how quickly we could see a Black Lives Matter t-shirts appear uh, for marches, right? Or images that were related to, you know, Breonna Taylor. But I would start to kind of see images like the Brooks slave ship. Yeah. And I saw there was an image of the Brooks slave ship and you could put it on a t-shirt or a bedspread or a yoga mat. And then, of course, the deep dive into images like uh, the Gollywog, images mm. that, you know, so many of us saw in our early school books, and that you could have that on an iPhone case. Mm. Um, the big one for me was, you know, the, the irony in seeing an I can't breathe face mask, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And so the thing that I was thinking about was, first of all, that people could take other people's images mm -hmm. or archival images and sell them and, and put them on objects, right? Without really any care or consideration for the real human beings yeah. that were represented by these objects, right? That was just like one day. And the idea for me that I really started thinking about is these iconic images and very racist images, you know, most of them, right? Just recirculating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've been around a really long time. And guess what? Fanon is even talking about the same kind of imagery in his books, right? So it just kept circling back for me. And even though I can't imagine that somebody would want to have a yoga mat with a slave ship on it, but for me, when I saw that Brooks slave ship and I saw that object, it's just that the potential to be able to make that object was enough for me. So so to me, that was just one of the Fanonian days. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Another yeah. one was the Black Square and that, that Tuesday, yeah. right? Yeah. After and, the murder of George Floyd, that everyone on Instagram was like, in solidarity, we should do this totally empty gesture and post the Black Square. Post the Black Square. And, and then Black Lives Matter, you know, the Black Lives Matter folks have to come on and say, would you please stop doing this? Because yeah. you're actually interfering with really important content that we're trying to produce. Yeah. And so that's another, for me, a Fananian day, right? Mm -hmm. In this really mm -hmm. crazy whether you call it, I don't know, colonial, post-colonial capitalist interaction. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you followed this at all, but in 2020, the Poetry Foundation was under fire because after the murder of George Floyd, they had like so many organizations and corporations put out this statement of concern or whatever you know which was totally toothless and so kind of sanitized and you know and they came under fire and were actually boycotted by a lot of poets uh, and still by some some poets who are just like yeah we're we're good you know we don't need you big funded organization if that's how you're gonna show up for our community um Yeah, because of that reason, I was really uh, arrested by that poem that you have in the book on page 22. Uh, it's titleless, but it has, yeah, it's like in the shape of a statement, you know, by, by like an organization like that. And I'm wondering, before we talk about this, if you mind reading it. Yeah, that's called Whitewash. Oh, it, it is. Um, okay, yeah, it's sorry. called Whitewash Underlying Images. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so it, that's what it is. It's a solidarity statement in the shape of a, of a mask. So, um, <laughs> all right. Uh, so I'll, I'll hold the spaces where the spaces are. So. Okay. During the insert general time period here, We have taken time to quietly reflect and listen to our valued customers, associates, fans, friends, employees, stakeholders. We have made a commitment to change by removing the name, image, icon from our packaging, branding, recognizing it does not reflect our core values We want to express our solidarity and our deep commitment to taking action. We believe this will make a difference over time. To our loyal customers, associates, fans, friends, employees, stakeholders, we thank you for your feedback. While the name, logo, image has changed, we assure you our product will remain the same. Thank you. And the thing about that poem is that in bold, you see what the real statement is. And it says, we have made a deep commitment to remain the same, which It's, is really what the poem is. Right. Yeah. It is. So, I mean, I love how you play with, I mean, this is harder to do on a podcast, of course, but visually the fact that the words are kind of, you know, laid out in the shape of a mask. And then indeed with that kind of bold face that you have like a secondary poem transmitted at the same time it's uh, it's just really great and I feel like you do that in so many of the poems in this book it's like you use the language to show the emptiness behind the language mm. um, what are some of the techniques that you use to pin down that emptiness well again I guess I, I would come back to that overlap 
between the image and the text. Uh-huh. So for example, I have a poem called uh, Blackout Refrain, and it just repeats the line, I can't breathe over and over again. But what it does is it uses the language of, of graphic design and the language of kerning. And so kerning is the space between letters. Mm-hmm. So slowly what happens is that that phrase gets kerned all the way down to a single point. So it gets squeezed, basically. It gets squeezed, yeah. The breath so, gets squeezed out of it. Okay, I didn't... Yeah. Okay, yes, right. And so if you're a graphic designer, you can totally see, like, you know, this is a death by kerning, right? Yes. It's yes. just been... Yeah. But it, what it does, as you ha- had, a, you know, talked about earlier, is that it leaves space because the murder of George... Floyd is not my story to tell, mm-hmm. right? That is not, but I am somebody who was affected and continues to be affected by it. And so the poem in itself is a Fanonian, it's a day. It's a day expressed in a repeated line that gradually gets, you know, um, squished to the point, you know, kerned to the point of, um, of absence. What I was grateful for that your book did, it's almost like a medicine against gaslighting. You know, like you grab these pieces of culture and of language that exists in our daily life that feels harmful, but it's sometimes you're just like, am I overreacting? Am I crazy? You know, and I feel like the way that you combine those in your book, like this empty corporate statement together with the the stuff that's on sale, you know, slave ship on a yoga mat, you know, Brianna Taylor, duvet cover, like all that stuff, the way you combine it, it makes me see, oh, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. Uh, this is indeed the world that surrounds us. Um, but I do wonder what it was like for you to spend... I don't know, a year or, or however long you worked on this book, focusing on and, and sort of lifting out of the, the wash of every day, you know, like how did that affect you? That's, uh, that's a really good question. And I, and I, I'm, I'm going to pull on the word wash. Actually, that was really like, wow. <laughs> uh, so first of all, I'm really grateful that you found in the work a place where you connected to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that idea of like not feeling alone was one of the reasons that I was actually writing the the work because I was, it was COVID and I was spending a lot of time alone and talking to my wonderful writer friends who really kept checking in with me to make sure that I was okay because I can rationalize anything. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. But um Coming to the, you know, to this book, I was realizing that I wasn't fine. And there was a couple of things. One had to do with my hearing the emptiness in all of the language 
that was coming out. So whether it was the language of nostalgia, the language of capitalism, like, yes, these statements that are written that are, you know, you hear the falseness in the tone. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. On the websites, on the social media. So there, so there was that stuff that was happening. But the other thing, like one of the things I would say this book is really about is like the difference in how I started to read. So for example, uh, the very first interaction in the book, I'm just going to turn to it here so I can sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the very first interaction is this piece of text and it says, hand wash cold with colors, do not blah, dry in shade, uh, lavar a mano con, con colores sim, usar blanquied, el ten de doro, no se deb, right? So it's just chunks of something. So yeah. getting to wash, right? Um, if you recognize that language, you recognize that that is the language on a wash tag. Mm-hmm. And it's just a segment of it, and it's blown up really big on the first page. Once you get to the poem called Forensic Report, which is me spending way too much time with the New York Times piece on the killing of Breonna Taylor, you'll find it in one of the poems. And it was because in one of the scenes, they showed where the bullets landed. And one of the bullets landed in a basket of laundry. And I, you could see the images and I blew up the image and I could see this tiny bra tag. And so that moment doesn't feel like a poem. It doesn't look like a poem, but it's doing something. And what it's reflecting is the, the trace of a human being, which was really important to me. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you wanted to read that poem, Forensic Report. It's on page 122. Sure. Do you want me to read the whole thing or part of it? It's, it's... Um, maybe because we just talked about the bra, just read only on page 122. Okay. Forensic Report, December 28th, 2020 to April 28th, 2021. One. It's about the way the New York Times laid out her home for the recreation. It's about nearly one million YouTube views. It's about the over 10,000 comments and the nearly 3.5 million subscribers and the fact that I'm one. It's about going over all of the evidence the reports, recordings, and crime scene photos, the lemon yellow saucepan, the small blue one hiding inside, the pot holders, and the oven mitts hooked on the wall above the sink, and the folded dishcloth draped over the tap. It's about the burgundy throw pillows against the sage green sofa, and the gap between the seat cushions, like somebody just got up. It's about that yoky rainbow sequin sneaker and a purple blouse and Exhibit 47, the beige bra tag with the tag sticking out, hand wash cold with do not bleach, dry in the shade, 
Lavar Amanokong, Conkaloresim, Ustar Blanquied, El Tendero, No Se Deb. It's about all the clicking, pausing, and zooming in, trying to get at the truth. It's about my sweaty hands, my swollen hashtags, and my scrolling heart rate. Yeah. I mean, I, re- I, this is so extraordinarily moving. Uh, these details of her life, you know, the lemon yellow saucepan, uh, the pot holders and the oven mitts hooked on the wall above the sink. Yeah, the bra and the laundry hamper, you know, with the tag sticking out. It's so close to any home that we know. And then to contrast that with how you begin the poem, you know, uh, it's about nearly 1 million YouTube views. It's about the over 10,000 comments and the nearly 3.5 million subscribers. That in itself is so dehumanizing. The scale, yeah, the scale at which her one small life has been blown up and taken from her in so many more ways than one. I think what's important, though, I, I just want to, you yeah. know, I just want to add that, um, you know, my my place as the poet is not to tell that story. It's about how that story is being told, how it's being represented, and how it is so easy to forget the human being and the kind of the falseness of the retelling over just because we tell the same story over, over and over again, doesn't mean that we are humanizing or remembering someone. Right. I mean, like it's just a different kind of a, of a way of erasing, right. It's kind of this palimpsest, right. One, you know, on top of each other. And so I think that what I was deeply interested in, in trying to figure out for myself is my own engagement with technology, with news, with social media, how I just kept going in, you know, reading the same things over and over again, looking at the same images, blowing them up, doing this as a way to try to understand, you know, really the, 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 the unthinkable. Um, Because underneath every one of these poems is a human being, every single one of them, whether it is George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or, you know, Gordon known as Whipped Peter, or whether it is, you know, Franz Fanon or our recently deceased Bell Hooks, right? There's just people in this entire book. Yeah. Um, Your book is dedicated to us. I mean, not me, (laughs) but, you know, us as in the community of Black people, and yeah, I was wondering, like, can you make that more explicit? Like what? Because your book is not uh, it's not an easy book. <laughs> it does not provide an escape of any sort. It does not provide relief in the traditional sense of that word. It, it holds up a, a mirror that is rather stark. And so I wonder, since you dedicate this book to black people, do you feel holding up this mirror can be liberatory? Hmm, That's a good question. Well, hmm. Um, I would say that we're talking a lot about images that I know is a little bit challenging, right? Yes. Um, 
But I think what was important is that the book ends with a kind of a reparation. It, it must, right? Like I, it just it just has to. And as the writer, I needed that. But I also need to leave my reader with that. And it's really interesting because I met, finally, I met one of my heroes recently, Norbese Philip. Who wrote Zong. And, Sorry. Um, yeah. Yes. And uh, she was here in, in Vancouver for a conference and we were sitting around and having some pizza together. And she said this amazing thing. She was talking about reparations. And she said, reparations, and I, I want to try to paraphrase her as, as generously as possible, but I wrote it down, is reparations are what we do for ourselves. Reparations are what we give ourselves, hmm. right? Because um, when we think of, you know, large-scale reparations, you know, that can become so abstracted into, you know, language around money and funds and, and just, but it's the daily care that we give ourselves and each other, right? And that was a really interesting and very poetic way of me trying to understand what that meant. And so I've been thinking a lot about that, but there's a poem that kind of represent the, you know, the last group of poems there is an attempt at, you know, a circling back and a kind of healing or revisiting an object that we met in the beginning and somehow giving that object some attention or letting it escape a little bit or, or something. So if it's okay, I'm going to read EMT. Okay. Because we've talked a lot about technology. We've talked, you know, and, and I feel like one of the things that I needed to be thinking about is how might we use the tools that we have for good. Yeah. How might we be more critical about how we use social media and technology in how we might perpetuate racism, you know, or all of the isms in the way mm -hmm. that we use technology. Um, so in the beginning section, I introduce you to, uh, to Gordon, who is also known as whipped Peter. And, and it's, you know, an image from a carte de visite, from the Civil War, and it, it's, it, it is just this image of, of this uh, Black man whose back is deeply scarred from, um, from being whipped. And I keep seeing this image everywhere. And of course, in my research, I could see that I could buy this image on a coffee cup yeah, or a T-shirt. Yeah. yeah. So I thought about, you know, how this image is being used now mm -hmm. and thinking about responsibility around ancestors. And so this poem is called EMT, which stands for Emancipation Modification Therapy. Is that an uh, actual uh, abbreviation or you, you I made it up. Yeah, you made it up. Right. <laughs> because the other thing that I've learned ab about, you know, kind of doing this kind of, you know, healing and this kind of work is that what we have is our creativity, right? When we talk about Black futures, we have to make those. We need new words. <laughs> Yeah, we yeah, need new yeah. ways in. So this is called EMT, Emancipation Modification Therapy. Um, here is the epigraph by Antoine Fuqua. It was the first viral image of the brutality of slavery that the world saw, which is interesting when you put it into perspective with today and social media and what the world is seeing again. You can't fix the past, but you can remind people of the past. And I think we have to in an accurate, real way. 
And uh, this is a uh, film director Antoine of Fuqua, June 15th, 2020. EMT. Dear Gordon, or is it Peter? Today, I googled whipped Peter and got 8,230,000 hits in 0.89 seconds. I found out Will Smith will be playing you in an action thriller called Emancipation, based on a true story fueled by that indelible image. I downloaded the carte de visite from your wiki. The abolitionist calling card still circulating widely in the public domain. I know you can't fix the past. I can only imagine what they'll do to you with a budget. I have no use for nostalgia, but I am your descendant, here to remind you of the past, to make you whole. I want you to know I photoshopped your back, removed each tally mark with the eraser tool, restored your skin with the clone stamp, and touched you up with a healing brush. I combed your hair and oiled your scalp and rubbed a little cocoa butter on your shoulders. A little salve or a bit of salvation. I pray I've done you no harm. May that all-signifying star, the untethered keloid of our mean remembering, find a new sky and hold its place in a kinder, loving universe. May you carry a lighter burden, if only for a little while, and find some relief from a lifetime of Februaries. Thank you. This is really such a beautiful poem. Um, and again, I love how powerful you make totally banal things. Uh, the eraser tool, uh, the clone stamp, the healing brush. I mean, when you think about these words, they become so meaningful. But of course, in the context of the Photoshop thing, it's totally banal, you know. And yeah, and then how you go on from that to the even more fantastical, I combed your hair and oiled your scalp and rubbed a little cocoa butter on your shoulders. Um, and it's beautiful because you you say earlier in the poem, we cannot fix the past. But I'm also wondering if you find that there are ways to care retroactively for our ancestors, I mean, your ancestors, and what does that care look like? Um. I, I think the way that I would say that I show that care now is mm. um, I'm trying to be a good ancestor now. Like I am absolutely thinking through the futurism of that poem, right? Like, mm -hmm. yes, all of those tools are mundane and many of them are used in the service of creativity and many of them are not. Many of them are used in nefarious ways, right? And so the kind of erasure that I am talking about is a different kind of erasure, right? And so I'm yeah. I'm just adding to the layers. So I think about 
what I'm doing now. I have one job, which is to, you know, to be a, a good ancestor. And the way that I try to do that is I try to write and make work that will live past me. My goal when I wrote my first book, How She Read, was that I would create a book that would end up in, uh, you know, school curriculum because it wasn't a book that I saw when I went to school and that I would try to write work that was smart and engaging and showed somebody that was thinking deeply about their time. Um, another way that I do that, which comes back to my teaching, is I try to mentor Black students, young Black artists, creatives, and so much of, of being, you know, a good ancestor today is supporting their practice, right? Yeah, so yeah. I'm pretty much thinking beyond this moment. Yeah. You know, there's the life outside the book, you know, there's what the book is doing and there's what I hope it'll leave behind. So I, I mean, part of, you know, doing this work and sitting with you is that we connect with somebody else today. Maybe there's a student out there that's interested in graphic design and is interested in like, you know, busting like super racist algorithms and, and undoing that stuff. Or the next time we, you know, we sit and we watch a Black History Month PowerPoint presentation and, uh, you know, Gordon is shown that we just take a moment to recognize that this is not this was a human being. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This was a human being. And. Writing this book was really challenging, and the thing that made me feel like I could do it was that I was just grounded in these voices before me and voices around me. I knew exactly why I was doing it. You know, the, the question was going to be the how, but I, the why was pretty clear, and it's just because all of this groundwork has already been done, and um, yeah, and again, I guess it just comes back to to being a good ancestor. Chantal Gibson is the author of two poetry collections, With Holding and her debut collection, How She Read, which won a 2020 Pat Lothar Memorial Award and a Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize and was a finalist for the Griffin Poetry Prize. Both were published by Caitlin Press. She's also a visual artist and arts educator whose work has been exhibited in museums and galleries across Canada and the US, including the Senate of Canada building in Ottawa. She's a 2021 3M National Teaching Fellow, and she teaches writing and visual communication in the School of Interactive Arts and Technology at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia. To find out more, check out her website, chantalgibson.com. The music in this episode is by Todd Sigefus and Erik van der Weste. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening.